You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. This episode is brought to you by Ancestral Elements Supplements. If you're looking for whole food, high quality, wild crafted supplements, look at Ancestral Elements Supplements. I offer a liver and colostrum supplement as well as a wild bear clover tincture. With my background in food science, I'm able to personally formulate and create my own supplement line to ensure the integrity and quality of each product. In both supplements that I offer, none contain any fillers. They're strictly 100% food items, making them completely bioavailable and non-disruptive to the gut microbiome. For further information, go to AncestralElements.com and navigate to the supplements page. Now, here's the episode. Hi, and welcome back to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. This is episode 59. It's called Healthy versus Healthy. This week, we're going to talk about the loaded term healthy. Specifically, we're going to look at that label in terms of nutrition and food. So what makes a food healthy? What is a health food? How is it measured? Is it actually healthy? And what's being looked at when people talk about any type of food being quote-unquote healthy. Health food is such a vague term. I think people throw it around without even really realizing the implications or what they're saying. It's become kind of synonymous with certain types of food without really even realizing what's in those foods on a macro and micro level. It's easy for us to have this kind of reductionist idea of nutrients and or micro and macronutrients of a particular food. But that's just one way to measure health in a food. So we're going to get into kind of the nuances and the differences between nutritionally healthy, environmentally healthy, and genetically healthy. And we're going to kind of compare and contrast and blend those three concepts so you can come up with a better version of a healthy food. Because really there are countless factors that go into creating a food that is nutrient-dense, genetically healthy, and that's going to make you healthy. I mean, it's so complex that there's no way we're going to be able to cover even a small amount of what goes on. But this is to kind of get you thinking beyond just protein, carbohydrates, sugars, fat, and maybe vitamins, minerals, because there's a lot more that goes into food than just kind of those reductionist things that we look at when we evaluate the nutrition or the health status of a particular food. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to compare two identical foods that are genetically the same and but raised in different environments. And we're going to kind of compare and contrast the two foods, which is actually beef. I'm going to do grass-fed, grass-finished beef versus grain-finished beef. And we're going to look at the differences nutritionally, environmentally, and genetically. I could do this with any number of species of foods, any kingdom, but this is a great example of a pretty hotly contested debate that's going on in the nutrition circles right now about whether grass-finished, grass-fed beef is more nutritious or if it's about the same as your kind of commercially done beef. And so we're going to take kind of a deep dive and a look into the differences between the two and the similarities. And this will be my kind of take on it. Okay, so let's dive into this a little bit. So first off, what is a healthy food? 
right? It could be from any kingdom of life. So animal, plant, fungi, bacteria, algae, slash protist. What would make a particular kingdom healthy or unhealthy? It really gets down to the nutrients that it's uptaking and can bring in to its cells, the environment where it's raised, and then its genetics. Those are kind of your three main components that create health in any type of organism that you're looking at. So let's say you went to your friend's house, right? And they're growing a tomato plant. It's the first time ever seeing this tomato plant. You don't know what's been done to it, but it looks super healthy. It has upright stalks. The leaves and the foliage are super green and vibrant. It's loaded with these beautiful looking red tomatoes that are ripened on the vine. Okay. You take a tomato off, you slice it up. It looks great. has great texture. You pop it in your mouth. It has great acidity. It's full of flavor. And you go, wow, that's a damn good tomato. What'd you do to this tomato plant to make it so nice? And then your friend proceeds to tell you that it got great sunlight. They watered it heavily once a week. They foliar sprayed it. They fed it seaweed extract. And that they did their very best to create ideal conditions for this tomato to grow big and healthy and express its full genetic potential. Right? And you go, well done. That's amazing. You could also go to that same friend's house, go into their backyard, see a tomato plant that is yellow, wilted, kind of hanging on the ground with a single tomato that's slightly shriveled up, a little discolored. You could cut it up. You could eat it. It could taste flat, have really poor texture to it, not be appetizing. And you could go, what the hell happened to your tomato? And they could say, ah, yeah, I just kind of planted it and left it there and didn't really do anything with it, didn't feed it, didn't make sure it was getting proper sunlight or water, you know, and you go, oh, okay, well, that's probably why it doesn't taste good. Which tomato in those two scenarios do you think is going to be more nutrient-dense and healthier for you? It's going to be the one that was well-provided for, the one that had ideal conditions to express its genetic potential. You could also buy a tomato plant that looks fantastic. Tomatoes look great. The plant itself looks really good, but yet the tomatoes taste like water or just terrible. They just don't taste good. That could be a nutrient issue in the soil. It could be a genetic issue with that plant in particular. It could be environmental conditions. Maybe you had a super wet summer and you had fungal or mildew problems with your tomato plant and it just didn't really produce well and it struggled with some type of an immune system issue in the plant, right? There are millions of different factors that can affect the nutrient status of a species, in this case, a tomato. And when we're talking about the health of a food, often we just talk about food as kind of a static thing that doesn't really change. You know, a tomato is a tomato. You pick up a tomato in the grocery store and you just kind of think that they're all going to be the same and they're not because environment changes year to year. Plant genetics can vary. You know, growing conditions and nutrient status obviously varies. So all of that factors into what we call nutrition in the foods that we eat. You know, we throw this word around so much about, you know, a certain food being healthy, and we have no idea what's actually going on 
to create health in that food. Because health has to be created. It has to be cared for, curated in any living species on this planet. And if you don't do that, then chances are it's not going to end up all that healthy. You're going to have systemic issues. And really, a lot of times when we look at quote-unquote health foods, generally speaking, people are just looking at a few factors, just a few select components that make up a healthy food. And often it's macronutrients, so carbohydrates, lipids, proteins, or some type of mineral or maybe vitamin status of that particular food. It's pretty rare that you get some systematic analysis of where it was grown, how it was grown, the nutrients that were fed into it, how it translated into the component that you're eating. That doesn't really happen, not in a laboratory setting, because everything's reduced down in a laboratory setting. That's too complicated. There's too many variables to be assessed. You know, you can see this a lot of the time in fruit, especially. So tomatoes or mango or strawberries are a great example. So how many times have you gotten a carton of strawberries at the store and they've looked perfect? They've been big and brightly colored red and you bite into them and they're kind of flavorless, right? That's not a nutrient-dense strawberry. That's a diluted down high water content strawberry that's been grown for production and usually minimally cared for, just cared for enough to get the look, to get the phenotypic ideal look that people are after, but not the flavor or the nutrient profile that people need. And that happens time and time again, especially with commercially produced crops, because you're producing those for productivity, not necessarily nutrition. So I want to take kind of each main component, environment, genetics, nutrients, and kind of break down how each one may affect the overall health of that particular food. So if you look at environment, that's one that kind of everybody can easily recognize being a main factor or component that changes the flavor and nutrient profile of a particular food. So if you look at something like banana, right, that's a tropical plant native to tropical regions around the world. And if you grow that in, say, North America, that's a plant that's not naturally native to this region. You know, what environment is going to be more conducive to a healthy banana? Southern Mexico, Hawaii, or say Michigan? Now, you can grow bananas in Michigan indoors under artificial light, but is that an ideal environment? And are you going to get the most nutrients out of that banana? And is it going to be genetically as healthy as a naturalized banana that's been in an actual environment? Chances are absolutely not. Whereas if you go to a place that naturally has bananas that have been generation after generation adapted to that place, they're going to have way more flavor, they're going to grow way more easily, and they're going to have a better nutrient profile. And all that's pretty common sense stuff. Like People kind of understand that. They get that. Now, obviously, there are plants that have been kind of hybridized and conditioned for a lenience of environments, which is great. And you can certainly get the nutrition out of those plants. You know, plants are extremely flexible and adaptable, just like many other species are adaptable to certain environments. 
but it's only within reason. And that genetic expression and behavior and growth cycle has to be altered to match the environment. And that's why a lot of times if you get fruit that's out of season or that is just doesn't grow that well in a particular region, if you're trying to force some type of species to grow in a certain grow zone that just it doesn't really support, it'll either be stunted, it won't produce, or it'll just really have poor nutrition and poor flavor. And you definitely find that in all types of foods, in all kingdoms of foods. I mean, animals can definitely have the same thing happen to them as plants if they're in a really harsh environment. You'll see that through things like offspring sizes and carrying capacity of a certain animal in a particular environment. You know, environment plays a huge, huge role into the overall health of any species. It's one of the biggest factors, even beyond nutrition, but it certainly plays into your nutrition status. Absolutely. Food is just one component of overall health, but it takes the right environment to create health in food that you eat. And if you don't have that environment synced up properly, then it's a lot harder to get the proper nutrition that you need to build your body from. And this is why the concept of bioregional eating or eating local is very important to keep good nutrition status because you're not importing foods from thousands of miles away that aren't synced up to your particular environment. Anytime you can eat foods directly off of your landscape where you live most of the time, that is a better way to go about getting your nutrition. I just spent the week in Hawaii and most people don't realize that the reason in tropical climates why there's so much fruit is directly due to the UV load on that particular environment. So UV creates a multitude of different fruits and sugar contents because the fruit soaks up that UV and allows the tree to kind of disperse that UV load throughout an extremely long growing season. If it didn't have that, then the tree would be damaged and couldn't function. It needs almost a reservoir to disperse that UV. And when you're in that environment and your skin and body is being exposed to that same UV, particularly the UVB radiation, and you eat that fruit, the glucose contained in that fruit that has been a little kind of factory for the tree unleashing the UV, when you ingest that, then it actually has glucoprotective mechanisms in there that help repair your skin and your tissue from the oxidation and the damage that you get from the sun, from the UV. In other words, the sugars in that fruit help repair the damage done from that environment. So things like sunburn, if you get sunburn, eat a little more fruit and that'll help repair your skin, quite literally the glucose in that fruit and the antioxidants that are contained in that fruit from the environment help repair the damage that has been done to your body. Specifically, the glucose actually upregulates two main factors. One are fibroblasts, which help repair connective tissue. And the other one is type 1 collagen, which helps, again, give your skin kind of rigidity and robustness. So fibroblasts kind of weave the cells of your skin together. It's what your connective tissue is made out of and what your skin, the structure of your skin is actually made out of. And then collagen, as you probably know, kind of gives your skin that resiliency 
and that ability to stretch. And so engaging in that food off of that landscape is very crucial to your overall health if you're going to be in that environment. And that's why you crave tropical fruits and things like coconut when you're in a heavy UVB environment, aka the tropics. It's not to say that you need that food all of the time every year, but it depends on the environment that you're in. That's why when people make blanket statements about fruit being bad and that fruit shouldn't be eaten, it's like, well, what are you talking about? Are you talking about all fruit should never be eaten? Or are you just talking about in the wintertime in your particular frigid North American environment? You know, you have to have context to what food you're eating. And these blanket statements about sugar being bad and you shouldn't eat any fruit, that's just wrong. It's not right because there's no context to that. There's these built-in kind of protective mechanisms when you're eating food off of the environment that you're staying in that become very important to your overall health and nutrition status. And I think most people can understand that. Most people understand that If you're eating foods right off of the environment that you're staying in, then it's going to integrate better into your body. You know, obviously there's those kind of diets that tell you to eat what your ancestors ate, you know, but those actually fall apart really quickly. That's kind of a foolish way to think about it because, yeah, you do have similar genetics, but your genetics change based on the environment that you're living in. The demands on your DNA are different depending on where you live in that given moment, depending on what environment you're in, your genetics instantly change. So why would you want to eat a diet that, say, your Swedish ancestors ate if you're living in Hawaii or if you're living in Massachusetts? You obviously wouldn't want to eat that same exact diet because the demand on your genetics have changed based on the environment that you're in. So Environment plays a tremendous factor in your overall nutrition status and what you're putting in your body. Okay, so now let's shift to nutrients and some of the factors that can affect the nutrient status of any species or kingdom of life. You know, when we're talking about plants, it's often the soil. You know, if the soil's depleted, then the uptake of nutrients isn't going to be there and it's going to create a deficit in the plants, and especially in the parts that we eat, meaning it'll be basically void of adequate nutrients that we need from that particular plant. You know, when talking about animals, again, if they're on kind of an edge environment where they can kind of barely make it, or if the environment changes and they're forced to kind of adapt, then often their carrying capacity, meaning the offspring that they produce yearly, will get diminished or a lot of times reproductive status just won't be possible and that species will die out in that particular bioregion if things change. And if you're eating animals that are unhealthy, that have either poor reproduction or that are barely hanging on, then obviously the nutrient status of that animal isn't going to be great because they're not going to have the adequate food, they're going to be under pressure from environment, it's not going to be a good situation and they're going to be unhealthy and you don't want to eat unhealthy animals. Just like you yourself wouldn't want to be nutrient deprived. You would eventually get sick and become unhealthy. I mean, there are countless things that can affect some type of nutrient status. And I think the best way to talk about it is 
probably the difference between conventionally raised cattle and grass-fed and grass-finished cattle. And this is going to be a, a pretty nuanced comparison between the two. Because honestly, if you're just looking at the nutrition of grass-fed beef versus conventionally raised beef, there isn't a huge difference. But I want this to be far more nuanced than just the basic nutrient profile of beef that's analyzed in a laboratory. There's a lot more going on between a conventionally raised cattle versus permaculture style cattle. And this will serve as a pretty good reference to get at the heart of what I'm actually talking about in this episode. Okay, so let's compare different styles of raising beef. So if you look at commercially raised beef, you're looking at cattle that are 12 months, 16 months old, that have been raised on grass the majority of their life. Typically, cattle go to feedlot for about three weeks to get extra marbling, to get extra fat. They basically become overweight in those three weeks, and they're fed grain, industrial grain, a lot of times from some type of industrial process. A lot of times, it can be from brewing companies and their excess mash that they produce for the beer. Um, a lot of times, it's just extra wheat crops and things like that that weren't uh, used in some type of ag human food. So that's the difference. And then with grass finished, obviously, you just keep them out in the pasture and they stay grazing until they're slaughtered. The interesting thing is the nutrient profile, if you just kind of look at macronutrients, which in beef basically are protein and fat because there's very little carbohydrate load in there. And then if you look at the micronutrients, so vitamins, minerals, the two are virtually the same on paper, that is. There's not a whole lot of difference. Obviously, the grain-fed cattle is going to be higher lipid content, but protein's virtually the same, and the vitamins and minerals are virtually the same. The differences you do see on paper are ratios of fatty acids and amino acids, so different ratios of protein content and fat content between the two. And that's significant. It may not look significant on paper, but when you actually compare the two animals, the fat content, or I should say the fatty acid content in the muscle is a really important factor. Not so much when you're comparing numbers on paper, but when you actually think about what fatty acids are and what they break down into, that becomes a very crucial difference between grain finish and grass finished beef. See, the higher the fat content, the more lipid oxidation you're going to have. But the profile difference between the fats, between grain fed and grass fed, is very different. So in grain finished beef, you have a higher omega-6 fatty acid content to omega-3. In grass-fed beef, that is flipped. There's a higher omega-3 content to omega-6 content, meaning omega-6 fatty acids are pro-inflammatory. You need them in your body. And omega-3 fatty acids are anti-inflammatory, which you also need in your body. In beef, you want close to a 2 to 1 or 3 to 1 ratio, omega-3 to omega-6. So in other words, the leaner the beef, the more omega-3 you're going to have. And it really depends on the composition of food that the cattle are eating. So grains obviously are high in omega-6s, and that's going to 
create marbling in the muscle and that fat is going to be loaded with omega-6s. If you're eating just grass, then grass has a higher omega-3 content than grains do, and that's going to create a higher omega-3 content in that fat. And it's not so much that, you know, the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio is different. I mean, that's important to look at, and it's an important thing to recognize. But really, the crucial thing about all that is post-mortem. So after the animals slaughtered on how that fat oxidizes because all beef is aged. It's all hung. And during that hanging process, when you hang meat for 10 to 20 days or so in a cooled environment, usually about 38 degrees, that enzymatic reaction and that fat oxidation comes into play. And it's an extremely complex process that I won't get into the nitty gritty details of. I've posted scientific papers in the show notes if you guys want to take a look at that. But essentially, the the polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are omega-6, oxidize at a faster rate than saturated fatty acids, which are omega-3. And so when the meat is hung, you get a higher degree of oxidated fat than you would if the animal is leaner and has a higher degree of omega-3 fatty acids in the fat. So in other words, when you're eating commercially raised beef that are grain-finished, that fat tends to oxidize faster than a grass-finished cow, which means virtually a poor nutrition status for you as the individual because you're eating a degree of rancidity in that fat. Now, you could trim all that fat off, but still there's going to be underlying fatty acids in that tissue that you're still going to be consuming. Again, probably you wouldn't notice a gigantic difference if you ate that day in and day out. It's more of an optimization type of thing at that point, but overall it does make a difference. Not necessarily to your direct nutritional status, but to your underlying genetics and the way your DNA functions, absolutely. And it changes the cow's genetics too. Again, this gets right into the heart of what you're doing to the cow's genetics and DNA. So grain-finished cows often have been documented to have way more cortisol in their blood. They're overweight. They're packed together, eating a diet that they're not biologically designed to eat. So you're causing stress hormones in that tissue and in the fat, and it's changing the genetics of that cow. And if you prolonged that for years and years, that cow would become so sick, it would die, which is not really an animal you would want to eat. And obviously, this kind of gets into some moral ground, and there's some morality behind all this. But in general, a green-finished cow is going to be an unhealthier animal, not only from a nutrient standpoint, but from an actual genetic standpoint. And you can see that in the genetic markers of a green-fed cow versus a grass-fed cow. And so when that stuff is oxidizing, after the meat has been hung, after the cow has been slaughtered, and then you're incorporating that into your body, there's going to be a difference. Small, although it may be, there will be a genetic difference, which it doesn't take much in a small genetic change to have major downstream effects if they're cumulative year after year, decade after decade. So grass-fed cows, they're gonna, that fat is going to oxidize less quickly. It's going to be more stable at room temperature after it's been packaged and shipped and then through the cooking process. 
it's going to be more stable. There's going to be less fat, and it's going to be more stable through the cooking process. When you're looking at amino acid profiles, so what build your protein in your body, which are amino acids, again, higher concentration of amino acids and stable amino acids in the grass-finished cattle versus the grain-finished cattle, which, again, on paper, not a gigantic difference. But when you go through the cooking process, when you take that meat from slaughter to aging to then cooking, that's when the differences start to really show up. So grain-finished cattle, although very similar protein status on paper, again, it's in the aging process when the cattle's alive and then post-slaughter where the amino acid profile starts to really be differentiated between grain and grass-finished cattle. So with grain-finished cattle, a process called proteolysis, in other words, how the proteins break down in a natural aging process and when the meat is being hung, really matters to your specific genetics. Because that enzymatic process of aging the meat, whether it's natural biological aging and or a process of being hung kind of post-mortem, that protein degradation really matters on a genetic level because the less protein degradation you can have, the more complete integrity on the protein you can keep after cooking, the better it's going to be for your body. Your body's going to be able to utilize that far more than if you're getting a really, really degraded protein. You can see that in the process of cured meats and stuff especially. So that's why you have to add things like nitrates because the proteolysis in those is so extreme that they become very unstable. And so the nitrates stabilize that process out. Obviously, there are natural curing methods and stuff that are being used constantly, which mitigate that nitrate input. But it's the same thing in a natural kind of aging process with typical beef. And so the higher amino acid profile and the correct amino acid profile in the muscle tissue that you're eating is very important because the protein breakdown after it ages is going to be different, it's going to be slower, and it's going to be more protective to you when you eat that beef. And all of that can be achieved through a grass-finished operation. So grass-finished beef has a higher proportion of cholesterol-neutral steric fatty acids. So in other words, they don't elevate your cholesterol like a grain-finished beef will. They also have less cholesterol kind of elevating steric fatty acids. Things like mastritic acid and palmitic acid. Also, grass-fed operations elevate precursors for vitamin A and E and have way more antioxidant profiles in their fatty acids like glutathione and superoxide dismutase. So in other words, the ratio is just healthier for that animal, which means when you eat that animal, it's just going to be healthier for you. The less burden that you can put on your body through food, through the nutrition that you're taking in, the better. Which ultimately, with cattle, comes down to the less burden that you can put on the cattle's body is going to be better for you. You know, again, on paper, this stuff may not look too extravagant, but in practice, in actual DNA and genetic changes, 
it is extremely significant. You know, that's why you can't just compare nutrition profile to nutrition profile sometimes. Sometimes you have to dig a little bit deeper, and that means going down to the genetic level of what you're comparing. And if you compare grain-finished genetics to grass-finished genetics, grass-finished genetics are far healthier. It's just a healthier and robust animal, and that's going to make a healthier and robust you. You know, again, none of this really is that complicated if you just think about it in the healthier plants, animals, fungi, bacteria, algae that you can eat, the better off it's going to provide your body. It makes a lot of sense. You don't want to be eating nutrient deficient or sick life forms. Not if you're taking energy and building your body from those life forms. You want the best versions of those to feed your body. And so, you know, while I'll agree with most nutritionists, you know, on paper, green finished cattle and grass finished cattle don't really differ all that much nutritionally. Getting down to a genetic level, that's when you see the differences. And really, you need to look at the differences from a calf aging into 12, 16, maybe 20 months before slaughter, after it gets slaughtered, how things start to degrade, after it's hung, how things start to degrade, and then after final cooking process, how things have degraded. You need to factor in all of those components from field to plate. And it's really rare that you'll find a study that actually does that. So I've done my best to kind of piece together a few different studies so you can get an idea of what I'm talking about here. But it is tricky. You know, proteolysis and metabolomics and this process of genetic testing is still kind of at its infancy, if you will. But there's enough out there and there's enough correlating evidence where I can be pretty sure when I say that a healthier genetic animal is going to be healthier for you to consume than a sick genetic animal. And we've known that. I mean, everybody kind of gets that on some level or another, you know, and just because it looks healthy and doesn't mean that it is. I mean, the process of dying meat in the store, whether it's fish or beef, to make it look better and appealing is something to be recognized. I mean, the color difference alone between grass-fed and grass-finished beef really can't be stated enough. I mean, it's just a healthier-looking meat because it's healthier genetically. Just like the tomato at your friend's house that was extremely healthy because they gave it the best environment possible, cattle is no different, right? If you neglect an animal, right? If you had a dog and didn't feed it, or fed it a non-appropriate biological diet, it would get sick, and it wouldn't be healthy, right? Not a good situation, especially when you're consuming animals like that. Not good for you, and it's gonna cause changes, nutritional changes, genetic changes, that will affect your body. Maybe not immediately, but years down the road, it absolutely will have an effect. And it, like I said before, it doesn't really take many genetic changes to have massive downstream effects nutritionally and for your overall health, right? Just one little change in transcriptome factors or glutathione and methylation pathways or superoxide dismutase pathways will have major consequences for the antioxidants that your body can produce and for the enzymes that your pancreas and liver produce. And that's the other thing about grass-fed versus grain-fed cattle is that if you're going to eat organ meats, specifically liver, from those animals, think about what a liver has to go through, right? You don't want to be eating liver from a sick animal. That's 
bad news because your liver is the organ that takes the brunt of the enzymatic activity and the kind of alchemy that has to go on through protein and fatty acid development. And if that liver is damaged or fatty, like it is in green finished beef, that's not a healthy organ to be eating. Stay away from it, just plain and simple. But if you really want to be sustainable and utilize the animal, make sure you're getting it from a healthy animal, nutritionally and genetically. And that's a great thing to actually look at too with this whole argument between grain-finished cattle and grass-finished cattle. If you look at the main organ, the liver, that has to deal with the brunt of those genetic changes and nutritional changes that are put on the cattle, it's a great indicator of the health of that particular animal. And what you see time and time again in grain-finished cattle is the liver is extremely unhealthy. The enzymes are elevated. It essentially has fatty liver disease. I mean, if cows could have prediabetes, or if doctors would label them with prediabetes, they would have prediabetes. You know, not a good thing. You know, again, not an animal you would probably want to be eating if you can help it. So you have to look at different factors. You can't just do this reductionist kind of muscle meat laboratory testing and run nutritional profiles on just, you know, latissimus dorsi off a cattle or something like that. Like, you've got to look at more things. You've got to look at the organs. You've got to look at stress hormones. You've got to look at genetic changes and metabolite changes in that animal and get a good idea and get a sense of what's actually going on. And what you find is a grass finished animal with a biologically appropriate diet just does better. It's in its natural environment, eating its natural food, doing its thing. And it's just healthier and it's going to be healthier for you. And as we know from the study of epigenetics, the two main factors that change your genetics are nutrition and environment. So if you can line those things up for yourself and through the things that you're eating, making sure that the things that you're eating also have good nutrition and a good environment, then the genetics you're going to be taking in are going to be far more biologically available and far more in line with what you want than something way outside of that. And this is where the rubber kind of meets the road when you're talking about some vague concept like nutritional genomics. You want to be eating the healthiest versions of species that you possibly can, nutritionally, genetically, environmentally. That's what you want. And that's really, in my opinion, what is lacking the most when people are talking about overall nutrition. Because it's easy to compare data points on a piece of paper when you're looking at macro and micronutrients. That's the easy part. It becomes complicated when you start layering in environment and genetic factors. But that's where we need to go with all this. So if you can just keep kind of at the top of your mind, you want to be constantly seeking out the healthiest versions of the foods that you're eating, meaning nutrition status, environment status, and genetic status, instead of just picking up a food that's labeled as a health food, it's going to be far better. That's the real health food. The real health food is having environment, genetics, and nutrition all lined up how it should be. That's what healthy food is. All right, that is going to do it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. 
I will talk to you guys very soon. As always, get outside, eat a diverse Five Kingdom diet, and I'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, leave me a rating and review. This will ensure that people can find the podcast so that we can grow the audience, and it will help me secure guests for future episodes. If you have suggestions on what you want to hear on upcoming episodes, go to AncestralElements.com and leave me a comment. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts and inputs and answer any questions that you may have.